0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Season 2 of The Hidden Lives of
1: Writers. I'm here with my co-host, Gail Schimmel. Hi, Gail. Fiona, can you believe it? Season 2. Actually, as I was driving here this morning, I can't believe that we've managed a whole season and here we are again. I know, and I'm so happy with
0: how Season 1 went. We've had such great engagement from the listeners, and I love how... The people who've been on the podcast, our guests, have now become regular
1: listeners as well. Absolutely. That's just been, it's been so exciting watching it grow. So can you tell us how your writing week has been? Because this is how we start off. This is how we start off. And my writing week has been strange. So we're starting on a strange note. You know, I often in interviews when I'm asked, how do you fit everything in? Which is what one of the things I'm going to ask our guest today. Mm. How do you fit everything in? And I go, I just make it one of the things I have to do on my to-do list. And that, this week, it's just, that's been a lie. Um, my, my day job has been very demanding and I have been writing while watching my son do jujitsu, while not watching my son do jujitsu, curled up in a massively uncomfortable chair. There's only one chair that's even vaguely comfortable. And I kind of sit waiting for the, for the class before us, for the mom who's been sitting there to abandon that chair so that I can have the chair <laughs> where you can work because you can balance your computer on the arm. But I've been writing a thousand words a night because he's wow. been wanting to go to jujitsu every night and I've got nothing else to do. And I can't watch because I hate seeing him. To me, it looks like he's about to be murdered in every move. Mm -hmm. So it's quite motivating. And what I can say I'm getting out of it is there is great truth and just find your time. Don't be precious about it. Write where you can write. I've also heard it said that it helps to be both cold and uncomfortable
0: when you're writing. And I certainly find that if I'm warm and comfy, (laughs) I tend to fall
1: asleep while I'm writing. That is so interesting. I'm definitely massively uncomfortable in this situation. And yeah, I've been productive, so maybe there's something in it. What about you? Have you been warm and comfortable or cold and uncomfortable?
0: Well, a little bit uncomfortable because it's university holidays at the moment, which means I suddenly have a full house with three children at home. And when they get home, they just don't want to adult anymore. They just want to go back <laughs> to childhood and have mommy do everything. And, and I, I suspect bet mommy wants to do everything. Yeah, mommy mommy does. Mommy wants them to come home and to enjoy being at home. And I fear the mommy police might come after me for saying this, but I do indulge them, so it's very time-consuming. But I'm sticking to my schedule of getting up early okay. and getting my writing done before they have even dreamt of cracking open an eyelid. So uh, it it's happening it's still happening we're carrying on. That's excellent
1: that you've stuck with that early morning routine. Yeah, it's it's the only way at the moment otherwise there's just too many distractions. And does it leave you feeling like you've you've achieved something for the day so you go into the day feeling more energetic and positive? Yes, I start each day off with I'm just
0: in a wonderful mood. I'm I'm ready for anything. I'm my writing's done it's behind me. I'm usually quite happy with what I've accomplished so it's it's a really good start to the day. So, Gail, what have you been consuming lately for inspiration?
1: So, Fiona, very early, I think it might even have been the first episode of season one, you told me about a book you were reading called The Golden Couple. Oh, yes, yes. By, by two authors, wasn't two it? Two authors, Greer Hendricks and Sarah Pekkanen. And at the time, I remember being intrigued. And then when I listened to the episode when we aired it, I was intrigued again. And I think I also might have heard an interview with the authors at some point in this process and finally i got around to reading it and i loved it i absolutely loved it it's it's just pure wonderful domestic noir thriller writing um i suspect they write one chapter one chapter each from a character Mm -hmm. um and then i read the next book the wife between us which might actually be a previous book but i read the wife between us and it I didn't think they were going to keep me as engaged again. Mm -hmm. And what I found fascinating, I don't think their books are – Massively original. Like they're clever and they, but, but a lot of the things, especially in The Wife Between Us are either I've read it before, which is perfectly possible with my memory, or I've read similar books where similar devices were used. But something about the writing and the pace and just the way they do it keeps you absolutely engaged. Mm. And I loved it. Um, so anyone who didn't read it first season on your recommendation, please read it now on my <laughs> recommendation. It's really just, it's a lesson in, in tight exciting writing what about you Fiona what have you been reading well
0: as we know we are not book snobs on this podcast so I've also been reading something uh, quite light and and I would even say fluffy and might even have been on a recommendation of yours I've been reading the snag list by Sophie
1: White I have not read that, or I've forgotten that I read that, (laughs) but I don't think I've read it. Okay. Well, it's a bit like reading vintage
0: Marion Keys, when she was kind of in quite a a light phase, or maybe the lighter aspects of Marion Keys. So she's Irish, and it's a real throwback to when Irish literature was on the rise, and all these Irish women were coming up with their lovely turn of phrase, Mm. their lovely sense of humor, their sort of gorgeous offbeat take on the world world. And this is very much that. It's about three women in their 30s and 40s who have all really epically managed to mess up their lives. I mean, the one woman is not really sure who the father of her child is. She's married to the one guy, but she had a thing with the other guy and she's not sure whether to tell, how to tell, what to do about this. She keeps sort of looking at the baby and thinking, "Now who do you look like? <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's this glorious tangle of messed up lives that needs to be sorted out by the end of the book. And it it does get sorted out in quite a realistic way. It's not just a fluffy wish fulfillment so i really enjoyed it
1: i've got the next one queued up on my kindle and uh, i'm looking forward to it and the moment we put pause on our recording i'm going to be downloading it on my kindle and i must tell you fiona there are two people in the world whose recommendations i follow unquestioningly when it comes to books maybe three one of them is you Mm -hmm. and the other one is our guest today
0: our guest today is Amy Haydenrich, uh, the author of the novel Shame on You, which came out in 2018, The Pact from 2019, and uh, Amy was a co-author on the novel Chasing Marion in 2022. She also has short stories in
1: several local collections. Welcome, Amy. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. Amy, we're going to jump right into it. How has your writing week been? It's been okay, actually. I find that often I have the best writing
2: weeks when my work life is busy and hectic and awful. Mm -hmm. My creative mind just bubbles up. So I've been wanting to get back into editing a novel that I've been working on for a couple of months now. But the edit that I have to do is quite finicky because I have to change the character. And I've been waiting for the character's voice to speak to me. And it's been over a month, but I had such a horrible working week. All my clients were terrible to me. <laughs> and, and in the midst of that, I actually started writing to calm down. And not only did all my work anxiety go away, but the voice of the character, who she's meant to be in this edit, started coming to me. So that's actually a really good thing.
1: I think I think this is a good point for us to ask you to go back to your origin story how you what does a work week what is your work week what is your work as opposed to your writing and how did you because you of of the many writers I know have got one of the most direct dreams of being a writer i suspect you've always wanted to be a writer but talk us through that how did you come to writing and what is it that it is your real job and i'm using inverted commas there <laughs>
2: So I've always been telling stories since I was – when I was three years old, I used to get that old school printer paper that's all connected. With the dots. With the dots Mm -hmm. on the side. And my mom said I would just draw like frame after frame, like storyboards. And my dad's an accountant, and he would walk in on this, and he'd be – and he'd say – I don't understand this child. <laughs> and my mom said she's happy. Just let her do it. So I, and then even in junior school, I wrote a whole lot of terrible derivative school plays that never got <laughs> that the drama teachers were just, just like put to the side. Um, yeah. And into high school and everything, I was always writing, always telling stories, entering story competitions. I think the first prize I ever one for a piece of writing was in high school and I won a Tory Amos CD, which is just so on brand. <laughs> um, but I studied journalism and politics and I, that led me into corporate communications. So I basically, I've ended up in finance, really. I am the voice for financial CEOs that's the little niche that I found and I actually really love investment in finance Amy do you understand money I do Oh my goodness, well, I
1: didn't know this. That's
2: episode. why I <laughs> drive a tiny little car. <laughs> that's why, um, yeah, that's why I'm not super leveraged because, um, yeah, so I've, I've always just ended up in very tech, either tech or finance and it, and that's very important for my writing career, actually. You'll see a little bit later, but yeah, so, I've enjoyed being in those spaces, being in that world. And my first short story I wrote was actually while I was working at my full-time job, they wouldn't let us go home to watch the 2010 World Cup opening ceremony. We all had to stay working. And I was so resentful that I thought, let me just write a short story instead of working. <laughs> That's amazing. And, and um that story was the first case of the year that was then published in the Bloody Satisfied Anthology. Wow. Um, yeah. So um so I guess in terms of my, my day job and my writing career, there's always been a bit of a dialogue and a juggle between the two. I've have I've very seldom done the, my writing career exclusively. Um, I've always been doing other things on the side, which is, it's not the ideal, but it's also quite important to me because I'm never heavily focusing on my fiction career to, to give me a sense of fulfillment and achievement. Because we all know
0: there are lots of ups <laughs> and downs that. Yeah. Well, they say if you want something done, ask a busy person to do it, and I think that's very true. For sure. And yeah. it sounds like you are a busy person, and you're a, a mom as well, so you have to fit that in. Yes. Yes.
2: That's. I. I will say there's some weeks where it really feels like it's all added up and that I'm not particularly good at any aspect
1: mm-hmm. of my life. <laughs> we know that, don't um, you, Gail? Yeah, familiar um, with that yeah. feeling. When people say to me, how do you do it all? I say, by doing it all very badly.
2: <laughs> yeah, but the thing is, you know, I find I get very annoyed when people say they don't have the time to write because for me, writing is something I have to do. It keeps my head in check it it's not a case of i am if i had the time i'd probably i wouldn't just be writing i'd be reading a book i would be walking or going on holiday it's i'm not writing because i've got time mm. i'm writing because it's a compulsive way that i process my life and my emotions um
1: yeah. So I, that's so interesting because I've often wondered why does it irritate me when people say, how, how do you have the time? And it's exactly that. There is an implication of, oh, you've got so little to do that you've got all the spare time to do this really f- very frivolous thing. Yeah. Whereas in mm-hmm. fact, it's not. It's just, it's that it's such an important thing. You make time for the important things. Exactly. So Amy Gale says
0: you've always had a very specific idea of where your writing career is going and a very specific dream. And I wonder if that ties in with my question, which is um, you are one of those South African writers who has not dallied much in the local market. With your first novel, you went straight overseas. You went straight for international publication. Can you talk us through that, both why you did it and also how you did it? I think a lot of people would like to know that.
2: So the journey, is. there are a few little um, bumps along the way. And I I think I wanted to go straight for international because I saw an international path as reaching more readers. Mm -hmm. And I and that I wanted scale from the beginning. Maybe that's the financial mind in me and, but it, it actually wasn't something that I pushed for early on in my writing career. So I wrote two books before shame on you. The first one was a very frivolous dating story. That's very loosely based on my early twenties mm-hmm. and that I actually sent to a local publisher, and it went all the way to acquisitions. And that was a process that took a year, and eventually everything crumbled at acquisitions. So I was very prepared to go to the South African market with that story. And then I wrote a second novel, which was a thriller set on a Buddhist retreat. And um, that went quite far with – um Another local publisher as well, mm-hmm. um, until the feedback was it would just take too much time to edit. So <laughs> how bizarre. How um, bizarre. Yeah. So, um, so then after those two, which were both set in South Africa, that's when I refined my dream, actually. And I said, let me write something set in, in, an international location that will appeal to international publishers and just go hard at getting an agent and Mm -hmm. getting published. And so that does lead me to how I went about getting published internationally. And again, no shortcuts to this. I wrote the book. I made it the best I thought it was. Mm -hmm. And then I bought the Writers and Artists Yearbook, which to describe over audio is a massive like Telephone book, yellow pages type of book with all the US and UK agents listed within it. And I would page and I would read and see whether they, um, whether they, they represented books that were similar to what I wanted published. And I would either cross them out or I would send a submission to them. Mm-hmm. And I'd do it in batches of about five to ten and I'd see what the feedback was and in the begin- in the beginning, the feedback was a little bit bland or impersonal, but as my submissions went on, I started getting more interest and people saying, "Oh, we would have loved the book, but we felt this about the lead character, or we didn't like this part of the plot um and so then I would edit the book as I was submitting huh um until I finally reached. I messaged someone in the US, Jenny Bent, and she replied immediately and she said, I'm interested in this. but And she read it and she came back to me and she said, I'm very interested in this, but like a long list of changes. And she said, if you make these changes, I'd be interested in your book. So I went back again, edited the book and I sent it back to her. And then she offered me representation.
1: And she is not a small agent. She's one of the big ones. She's one of the big ones, yeah. Amy, I know that you are queen of the query letter. And I want <laughs> you to tell our listeners what a query letter is. And maybe give, let me pretend it's our listeners. Maybe give our listeners a few hints on how to do a good query letter. I'm taking just, notes. Yeah, Gail. I will quietly <laughs> take
2: notes pretending it's for the listeners. So I will say, I think why I enjoy writing query letters and why I might be good at them is because I spent a long stint of my career doing corporate PR, where I was pitching stories to journalists. And journalists are probably more terrifying than agents. (laughs) And they're more jaded than agents, and you really need a hook to get them interested. Mm. So with a good query letter, your first paragraph is saying, this is the hook of this is what your story is about. And it's also saying why you approach that particular agent. So you could say, dear Jenny, I have got, um, a romance novel set in the 1960s. I approached you because I saw that you are looking for historical romance titles. So just establishing a clear link and showing that you're personally approaching them for a reason. And then you have a one sentence that describes your book. And I think it's Gareth Powell who shared this formula. That's where I got it from. But You introduce the characters, you introduce their stakes, and you say what obstacles they have to get over in order to achieve those stakes. Mm -hmm. That's actually it. That's the formula. So I always open with that... With that sentence. And then I also say this book would sit comfortably on the shelf next to, and then I list one or two comp titles. Mm-hmm. That is actually the most crucial thing for an agent because they are, it's a product that they're looking to sell. So they want to know exactly how, it, where to put it on the shelf. And they will look at the data of how much those books, other books have sold to get an idea of how much yours will earn. So that's why you have to be so careful about comp titles as well, because you could comp to something that was very literally literary or critically acclaimed, but it didn't sell a lot. So do your research in what top selling books okay. are similar to the book that you're pitching. Then, um, then I go into a pitch, which is just a paragraph that says a couple of the key tenets of the story and always just mapping out what the characters want, how they're going to get it, what challenges are in their way. So just a very broad hero's journey. And then you end off with a bio linking your specific qualification to telling that story. So that doesn't have to be all your writing achievements. For example, I'm, there's a book that I've been pitching, which deals with a certain aspect of technology. And I, I'm very experienced in writing for and about that technology. And that's of great interest to agents because mm. agents are already saying this will be so
1: great in the media when you can, mm. you know, speak about that link. And Amy, what I'm getting out of that is a mistake that a lot of young writers make of pitching themselves as very special. This book is like nothing you have ever read before. Agents don't really want a book that's like nothing they've ever read before.
2: No, definitely
1: not. No, okay. They don't
2: want something too unique or something that even is too genre crossing. Or <laughs> I mean, I, I think... If you, As long as you can compare it to a few things on the market, you're okay. But especially in this current climate, you have to have a very strong commercial link. And that's not to say that you're selling out at all. Um, just write the book that's on your heart, but then
0: just package it in a way that people can sell it for you.
1: Very interesting.
0: It is. Um, now, Amy, I know some of our listeners who've had the experience of querying agents are probably screaming at the their phones right now because it takes so long, especially in these post-COVID days, to get any kind of a response. Mm. These days, a six-month wait is not at all unusual. And they do say that bad news travels slowly and good news travels fast. So if if it's good news, you hear quickly. If it's bad news, they sort of keep you waiting for six months. But how do you negotiate that, that, those long wait times? Or are you getting quick responses these days?
2: So it depends. I think my secret is just volume. Mm -hmm. I pitch a hang of a lot. And when I'm really consciously pitching a book, I'll sit every, I only have time on a Sunday night. I will email about five, fifteen 15 agents on a Sunday night, and then I forget about it. Mm-hmm. And because there's so many queries out there, I just, um, oh, and just a bit of context as to why I'm querying again mm-hmm. at the moment, because I think, and I'm going to go back to the waiting time but so I was with the bent agency and then my agent she saw me through two books but then creatively we weren't on the same page anymore and I don't think it's something that is spoken about a lot but it's actually Mm. extremely common Mm. for a writer to go through a couple of agents over the course of their career but the worst thing about it is Even if you've published a few books and you've had an agent, you don't just move to another agent. Mm. You start at the very bottom all over again. You're back in the slush pile. Mm. So emotionally, that can be very challenging. But I just see it as I separate myself and my ego from what I'm doing and I just get to the job of sending the applications out. In terms of hearing back, it – you can't wait for anybody. You go crazy. You can't think you can't put a face to any one or any person that you've applied to. And it's difficult. It's almost like online dating or (laughs) because you, you read this person's profile and you imagine a whole future of you guys together and working together. And you look at the other titles on their list and the other authors and it's, it feels so close, and because if you're pitching well, you really you're really relating how your book would fit in well with their list, you are vividly imagining how amazing it would be for you guys to work together, so it you can't get attached to anybody even if someone asks for a full manuscript, even if, as has been the case with me, someone calls you from a big
1: flashy agency you can't get attached until you have something signed amy will you just explain for the listeners that that thing about the full manuscript versus what you start with in your query okay. letter you don't attach the full manuscript to your query letter in a very in very
2: rare cases there are two agents out there that do but for the rest of the time you attach Either three chapters or 10 pages or 50 pages. Mm. It depends on the agent. Those pages also have to be formatted in Times New Roman 12 or Ariel 10. Or You've it, got to read
0: carefully what You have the to agent read carefully. carefully. And do exactly what they say. Yes. If they have asked for 30 pages, don't send three chapters. No, they they've won't asked for it. three chapters, don't send. It It annoys them.
2: Yeah. It doesn't care if you're Damon Galgut sending <laughs> the first pages of the They will throw it away. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. So uh, last thing on the response times, I have found though that if you communicate your hook well, and I have with my latest book, you do hear back very quickly. And it's almost, it kind of breaks the illusion a little bit when you see that if they want to have the time, they do have it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Anyway. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> <laughs> You're giving me rather nasty flashbacks Of when I have indulged In this querying um, This querying project Properly um, and I'm, I now know exactly what I did wrong with everything. And also that thing of getting too attached to the dream. Um, it's a it's a very real thing. It's a very real trap that you become mm. convinced. And you sometimes stop querying. I've stopped querying because I'm so convinced that Agent A is going to be the perfect fit for me. And surely they will see it too.
2: Yeah. And I, the way I'm seeing my writing career now, writing and querying is – It's just a case of it's a daily practice. I wake up and I do something for my writing career every day for an hour or two, whatever I have. That's either writing, editing, or querying. But whatever I'm doing, it's just a daily practice and I let it go. Because to to be attached to a dream in some form is just – it's just a recipe for disappointment, despair. Um, because I found even with Shame on You. So Shame on You was my debut with Bonnier Books, internationally published. It, it was, um, it got some really great blurbs. I ended up in their London office drinking Prosecco and I felt empty and scared in that moment. And that was me reaching the thing that I thought I always wanted and yet I couldn't, I didn't feel the contentment and enjoyments that I thought I would.
1: Why? (laughs) This is so
2: interesting. Sorry, unpack it. Why? So I think it's that, it's that attitude of fear of wanting to hold on and keep the thing that you have. Mm. So I think I already... Even as I was there drinking the Prosecco, I was hyper aware of sales and whether or not in the UK it's this big thing. If your book gets into a supermarket and shame on you hadn't got into supermarkets. Okay. Um, Shock horror. (laughs) Um, (laughs) uh, But, but, and shame on you. The cover, the initial cover isn't the one that we have now. It was this zoomed in. Piece of spinach, but it actually oh, really worked. <laughs> <laughs> they, they I don't think I
0: saw the piece of the, spinach. They, I'm trying to remember so a so piece they, of spinach <laughs> and the story. So
2: they did that for the ebook publication, which okay. was a few months before, but they zoomed in on the spinach so all the veins were sticking out. So, and it's about Shame on you is about a health influencer with okay. a dark secret okay. and there's murder involved. So, um, the veins and the spinach, it was quite ahead of its time, but the e-book didn't sell very well. Um, I remember my agent was like, oh, it only debuted at 300 on the Kindle charts.
1: <laughs> Sounds <laughs>
0: rather good to
1: me. Yeah. But, uh, but, okay. but African, uh, African writers uh, are like, oh,
2: 300 on the but, Kindle charts. But the thing is, the standards <laughs> in that market are just so ridiculously high. For a debut, they're looking for... Hundreds of co- thousands of copies in the first few weeks. And if you don't meet that, they almost give up on you. Um, so I think I was, I was trying so hard to be the thing that they thought that I thought they wanted me to be and to, you know, hang on to the success at, in some way that I wasn't really in tune with
1: how incredible that achievement was. Mm. I was looking for the next thing, I suppose. Okay. And I think that's one of the things that you and I have talked about, that you you tick all the boxes, you reach all the things, you get the agent, you get the international publishing career. It's no guarantee. A year later, you can be back in the starting block, like you said, looking yeah. for another agent. It's no guarantee that now you are an international best-selling writer.
2: International publishers will often say, that a book didn't sell as much as they hoped. But just because a book doesn't sell amazingly in the first month doesn't mean that it's not going to be successful. So for shame on you, I got my royalty statement the other day and I've sold 44,000 copies. Wow. And, but that's, those copies only sold about two, three years into the book being out because Mm. of word of mouth. And in certain markets, so in India, Shame On You became really popular. And then in the US, Shame On You went on special on Kindle, and then suddenly everyone was reading it and talking about it. So 8,000 of those 44,000 sales happened in the last four months. Mm.
1: Very Um, interesting.
0: So So it's got a long tail, that
2: book. yeah, I think the great thing about that publisher is their distribution was very strong. So it's ended up in all sorts of random countries over the years, and then if people connect with it, so it gets a readership. But yeah, I think what I've learned is that the the path of a writer and a book is not linear. Mm. It's you can write, you have to write the best possible book you can that reflects. You know the reason that you wanted to engage with this topic and that character, and then you let it go, and you can't expect that it it will just hit the Sunday Times bestseller list or any of those things because that is what we see in the media is that we see these authors that come out of nowhere and they are a, Um, A startling debut and then they debut on all the bestseller lists and then they get the movie deal. But actually, probably behind that story is not only a lot of work and struggle on the part of the author, but a lot of marketing budgets on behalf of the publisher.
0: Mm, mm, mm. I think a lot of our listeners would be interested to hear, especially if they are South African authors. Uh, You set Shame on You in London. I wanted to ask you about setting books in an international city. Had you lived there? Had you just done your research? How exactly does one get those details right?
2: So I lived in London for a couple of years in my 20s, and that's why. And I set Shame on You there, and a lot of the places that I – that I write about in shame on you were places on my route to work in the morning. And mm-hmm. so I knew them quite vividly, but my best friend is British and she still lives in London. And for that book and subsequent books, I often have her go into a cafe and she just films, she pans her camera around the cafe so I can describe it. Or I'll say to her, if I'll ask her questions such as if you are buying a present for somebody, you know, that's a family member, where would you go or that sort of thing. So just those everyday little details I'll ask her as well. Um, and also just I, there's a lot of strange clips on YouTube where people just post, City, you know, streetscapes. Or mm, there's a mm. guy who's been very helpful to me. <laughs> he just he walks just along streets in London and records it, and that's
1: really great. I wonder who other name writers wants to watch <laughs> someone walk down streets of London. What a what a strange but useful thing to do. It's very useful, <laughs> yeah. Amy, when we did Chasing Marian, because I'm one of the, your co-authors on Chasing Marian. What was that? Was the moving back to Johannesburg as a writer? How was that for you? Because Chasing Marion is very much, uh, your, your character in Chasing Marion is a very Johannesburg voice, <laughs> a very Johannesburg character and very based in place. Did you love it? Did you hate it? How was that changing place? I really loved it. I,
2: it actually made me, want to write more set in South Africa because I think that setting is a character on its own. And when you know the character of a city so intimately, you just write better. And I think there's an ease to the writing that perhaps wasn't in my earlier books that are set in other places. So my next book that's coming out in March next year is set in Cape Town. And that's where um, My family is from And there's this particular place in Cape Town Where I spent a lot of my childhood And that's where my next book Is set and it really It adds so much to the story And with Chasing Marion, one of the best Reader feedbacks that I've received is from someone who lives in Hyde Park who said, I can't believe you guys even included the lawyer who's always on his
1: phone and tashes. <laughs> <laughs> I've never noticed him actually, but maybe I he haven't seen time He sits on the side towards
2: time. exclusive books, and yeah, any details of the case will be revealed <laughs> as he has breakfast. <laughs>
1: I think I've seen him at George's when we had supper one night. He speaks in a very loud voice. Yes. Okay, I know him. I know him. Good. <laughs> 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 and I Amy, mean, the next book um, is being published by a South African publisher. Yes. And that one you took straight to a South African publisher. Talk to us about that decision.
2: So sort of straight to South African publisher. I had a a short little journey. Um So this book is called Bad Luck Penny, that the title is going to stay. And it is a multi-layered family saga set against some political stuff happening in South Africa at the time. And I, it's my best writing, I feel, because in my writing journey, that's that's where I landed. I just wanted to write something that felt true. And this book came as a result of me doing the commercial thing, feeling not only a little bit dissatisfied, but also feeling like I hadn't shown my full self as a writer to the world. And I'd sometimes feel embarrassed about that, that I wanted to write to the best of my ability. So I wrote this and my comp title in my pitch was Sorrow and Bliss, Meg Mason. And I pitched it to a handful of agents. I didn't go big. And their response was, this this could be very interesting, but not for us. And at the same time, I spoke to a South African author, Joy Watson, who was working with Karina at Caravan Press. And she just spoke about how intimate the editing process was, what a champion Karina is for her authors. And I thought, this book is so personal. It's such a part of me. I'd rather have that experience with publishing this book. And besides, there's some South African nuances in the book, including some racial nuances that are uncomfortable, but that I really wanted to speak about Um And I felt that a an international publisher would be too scared. Mm. I think that for all of our complexities and um, shortcomings as a country, I do think that we are quite comfortable with having open dialogue about difficult conversations, Mm. I mean, difficult topics. We have to be. So Karina loved the book. She leaned into everything, and yeah, she's publishing it next March, year, 2024. March twenty twenty four.
0: March twenty twenty four. Yeah, exciting! I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> um, to go back to Shame on You for a moment, it was inspired by real events, wasn't it? Yes. Yes. Okay. Now, when that happens, and the the publisher is aware of that. Is there a kind of legal vetting process that you have to go through or was it sufficiently different that it was just pure fiction and you didn't have to worry about that?
2: Thankfully, it was sufficiently different. So it was linked to the one of the seeds of inspiration was Bell Gibson, who was an influencer in Australia, who pretended that she had cancer and she amassed a whole lot of funding. And then it came out that it was all fake. But in this book, the character was English, and yeah, the links weren't that clear. So if the Australian publishers picked it up straight away, mm-hmm. and Australian readers picked it up, but they found it interestingly interesting, and when Belle Gibson's story comes up in the media and social media, I always link it to Shame On You, and I promote the book.
0: <sighs> right. Um, right.
2: Because there's nothing, but in this case, I think also, there's nothing one can say about Bill Gibson that's blasphemous <laughs> that she hasn't already,
0: you know, said about herself. <laughs> well, it's interesting to me because there was a time when the person you put on Instagram or on social media had to be you. It, it had to be kind of. Uh, The the facts of the character on social media had to match up with the facts of your real life. And I think in the age of TikTok, that has shifted in a way because many people are playing characters, Mm. even if it's supposedly their own life or their own real family. Um, You know, sometimes someone will comment – oh, a mom would never say that. And then someone else will comment, well, you know, they're just showing a version of their lives. It's They've kind of acted a scenario of their life. It's not their real life. There's much more ambiguity around Definitely. it. So I don't know if that – maybe the fundraising, but I've even seen some fundraising that, you know, wasn't based on absolute real truth. And there is a kind of buyer beware situation mm-hmm. where if you're going to give money to someone online – you must be aware that maybe the facts aren't exactly as stated. Um Do you think there's more, at least, ambivalence around this these days? I think so. And I think there has
2: been a maturing in how we engage with social media and a real sense of the distinction between reality and social media. Mm -hmm. And I think that's actually why shame on you got popular later on in its cycle, because I think the book is quite critical of social media. Mm -hmm. So I see, and I, I do actually read reviews because I want to be better. So I like to see what reviews say. Um, and I've seen there is a camp of people that are quite critical of social media that really enjoy the book and mm-hmm. they see it as mm-hmm. a warning. And, and I think that as we, as we almost go, I like to call it almost a post social era mm-hmm. where we were sharing everything and we were motivated to share. We're now in this limbo period where we, we don't want to do that as much anymore or the platforms that we loved such as Twitter are falling apart mm-hmm. Don't and- say it, don't <laughs> say it <laughs> so, uh, so I think you know, dis- discussing things and engaging with stories where, um, where they're critical of social media and influencer culture particularly, that is something that is of interest to readers and it's something that is in the zeitgeist
0: yeah, I'm thinking uh, relative to shame on you. I saw a TikTok the other day where the, the tagline was POV. You're a cancer survivor yeah, who's come so. back for her chemotherapy. And then someone points out that the person acting it out is not a cancer survivor at all. And someone else says, no, but she's an ICU nurse who knows a lot about it. And that, that veracity of you have to have lived the life that you're showing on screen. Mm-hmm. It seems to be gone. You can play characters now.
2: Yeah, it's more storytelling yeah. on social media. Yeah. I mean, I did a couple of those POV ones where I'm the POV of my character, where it's, oh, you interesting. know, POV, you almost murdered by your date. I mean, <laughs> that didn't happen to me.
1: <laughs> Amy, you are actually the person who finally persuaded me that I must stop being a baby about TikTok and stop saying that I'm too old for TikTok and embrace it. And it, you You despite this criticism you have a social media, you are very active and you are you are very good at it
2: that is true, Miss lawyer
1: <laughs> <laughs> Talk to us about that. talk to us how do you use social media as a writer, and how are we supposed to be using it
2: so yeah, I do think that I've got an emotional disconnection from social media that i am I'm not using it for any sort of affirmation I'm using it as a broadcast channel Mm -hmm. so um in it's I'm not perfect at every channel so my Instagram for example it is still quite personal and on my Instagram stories I share things that are happening in my life but then sometimes if if you look on Instagram stories you see who's viewing it and I've got some I'll post a picture of the dinner a dinner that I made And an ex-boyfriend from when I was 19 Is looking at it And then I feel all yeah. icky I'm like, why is this person I haven't spoken to In decades Why does he know what I had for supper I feel so strange And, and I, I'm definitely showing my son A lot less on social media Um I'm, I read some Chilling stuff and see some chilling videos On TikTok about You know, the reach of pictures of your children mm. and I definitely didn't think that in the early days when I was posting pictures of him as a baby. So I mean everyone's always having a journey with social media. With TikTok, I I like TikTok for how unedited it is and how um you know, I like to post book reviews on there, writing tips like Gail does very well. Um I haven't what else just general bookish things, bookstores, and, and I keep it very much on theme and mm-hmm. on character. You know, in, on TikTok, no one would know that I am a mom, for example, mm-hmm. because all I do is post about writing and being an author. Mm-hmm. And I do things like day in my life as an author, but there I do allow myself to be quite real and show that I am doing my day job and then I'm doing a bit of author stuff and that sort of thing but it is still edited I mean I've been sick for a couple of weeks and I'm not posting anything about that on social media I just don't have the energy for it
1: and we don't want those ex-boyfriends knowing about your sickness
2: No, we don't. We don't. Uh, thankfully, the ex-boyfriends haven't found me on TikTok yet. They're all too old. <laughs> um, but my favorite platform of all, and the one that I would encourage all writers to do, is Substack. Um, sorry, Gail. Um, a Substack newsletter, because there... I can tell the story of what's happening in my life as an author, but I can also recommend books and podcasts and, um, you know, string everything together in terms of a wider story. So social media, they're all these little snippets and you have to work very hard posting constantly to link them all together. But in Substack, especially as a writer, you know how to tell the story. So you can, and, even in my substacks, I am revealing some vulnerability, but not all of it. You know, um, it's not not everything is out there on the page, and and I think you can be quite measured in what you reveal
1: to your audience. Amy, I think my resistance is to substack is it takes from your writing time. It's writing. It's you've got to. It's it's not like a TikTok, which you can quickly do. Um, You've got to sit down and you've got to write. Do you not feel like it's stealing your your writing time?
2: So I have different levels of writing. So there's focused writing on a book. But then I have just general writing, like writing in a diary or morning pages, if anyone okay. does the artist's way. So I take Sunday as clearly my day where I just do all these things. On a Sunday afternoon, I take like half an hour and I write the substack. And I mean, that half an hour is also with little five-minute breaks with Zacky wanting various snacks or,
0: you know, wanting to tell me that there's a hardy doll on the stop or whatever, so... And is your Substack for subscribers or just anyone who signed up? It, it's not paid. No, mm-hmm. it's just open. So people do subscribe,
2: um, but I also share the link on all my social platforms. So people like Pam don't subscribe, but they read it
1: on my social I read media. It. I read it, but I don't know that I'm reading Substack when I read it. I think I'm just reading a newsletter so that's also interesting. Before we run out of time, I just want to ask you about genre change. okay? Because I know that you have... You are doing that. And you sometimes amaze me with your flexibility. In fact, Fiona is the similar writer to you Hmm. in that. Your flexibility about genre that we'll be chatting and then your son, you go, oh, I'm thinking of doing da-da-da-da-da. And it's (laughs) completely because when I met you, you were a thriller writer. In my head, you were a thriller writer. But actually, you're going all over the place with genre. I am. Talk to us about it. What can we expect maybe and how is it writing different genres?
2: So for me… I'm just more focused on the story. The story comes to me first, and then it. I'll see what genre that fits into. So thriller, that was my first genre because at the time it was what was selling best. So, and I think I also, I hadn't had a child yet, and I had a whole lot of leftover angsty darkness that I needed to put into stories. And both my thrillers are based on real things that have happened to me. So there is some trauma in both those stories, and I wrote the trauma out in those two thrillers. And while I do have a couple of thriller ideas left in my brain, I don't have enough trauma to fuel them. (laughs) Touch wood. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. It's I and I think I deal with life in a different way now. So I I I find that dark tone very hard to sustain in a thriller. So I've always loved a more literary voice. That's why I loved short stories so much, something, and by literary, I mean, because all genres can be beautifully written. I just mean a bit more experimental with form and narrative. So I love that. Um, I really want to write a children's book. Um, Zach is intent on me writing a children's book, and I have an idea that I'm playing with. I want to start with a chapter book. So a little bit longer because I just find picture books absolutely daunting so but maybe a picture book one day um and yeah there is another book in the wings that I'm working quite hard on and I think I would call that just
0: commercial women's fiction And those two novels that you wrote before, Shame On You, I'm curious whether they're lying in a drawer somewhere or what happened to them.
2: So the thriller on The Buddhist Retreat is very much in a drawer. It's quite interesting, though. It deals a lot with incel culture,
0: which was very
2: much – which is current now. It wasn't Mm. then. And it was all set within – there was a whole part of the narrative set in an incel chat room. So maybe I should read that one again. Mm. And then – the first one, no, the first one I did self-publish under a pseudonym, mm-hmm. Gail the I have it.
1: read it. <laughs> I loved it. it. It was, it was really, it's fun and it's light and it's funny. And you look at Amy with a slightly new, <laughs> new look. If you know that it's quite autobiographical, but it, it, I loved it. I don't think you've got anything to feel any shame about. It's not shame on you. It's, it, I loved it. Um, it's fun. And I do think that humorous tone
2: is something that I do love having in my writing and what was such a joy was Chasing Marion to actually get into.
0: Well, we've talked about what you enjoy writing and sort of crossing genres and so on. But now tell us what you enjoy reading or watching or listening to. What have you consumed lately that struck you in some way?
2: So in terms of my reading, I read very widely across a wide, wide range of genres trying to think what I loved the most. I loved um, This Time Tomorrow Emma Straub. I love anything with a little bit of time travel Mm -hmm. in it. I'm similar to Gail in that way. And then I love Elizabeth's Stroud, particular novels of hers. Others get a bit dark and give me nightmares. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those are the main things I've been reading at the moment. Podcasts. Love your podcast, obviously. I <laughs> read a couple of writing podcasts I enjoy are In Writing with Hattie Crissell. She's a British journalist and she interviews some lovely writers. Then also The Write-Off with Francesca... I can't remember her surname, but she, she speaks to writers about various moments of failure in their lives, whether it is mm-hmm. not getting an agent or a book not selling on submission, which is a very real thing to a book not selling well. And I engage a lot with stories about writers failing because we're just failing all the time and we, we have to build up quite A lot of resilience Mm. and to hear that i'm not alone in doing that is really helpful and yeah i i have a five-year-old so i don't watch tv i pass out at about eight
0: (laughs) (laughs) well amy thank you so much for your time we know you are busy we really really appreciate your coming into the studio today and uh, we're very much looking forward to your book next year
1: so looking forward to your book next year
0: thank you for inviting me guys it was so much fun Gail, that was so interesting. I really feel as though that added some new value for our readers.
1: I think not only for our listeners, Fiona, not (laughs) our readers. um, Not only our listeners, but for me. I learned a lot from that about the query letter process. I've been doing it so wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, If I ever have to do that again in my life, I know a lot more about it now. Um, I just, yeah, so interesting. She's such a career writer I think of her as a career writer she really comes to it with a sense of this is a job this is how you do the job these are the steps you have to take and I find that very inspiring yeah
0: she's very intentional about building her career and sort of putting all the blocks in the right spaces Mm -hmm. and and Mm -hmm. doing it in a deliberate
1: way and I do think I think remember her name that That's kind of a thing I feel about her. She's going to break out. She's going to be one of the big ones. Remember her name. We interviewed her back (laughs) when, although not back when because she's already had enormous success. But, yeah. I quite agree. The thing that I got out of
0: what she said in particular, and a lot of it related to once we'd unfortunately finished recording, but I was saying that I tend to protect myself from sort of querying people and really putting myself out there, and I'm quite comfortable in my little bubble and don't really want to get outside of it and She was saying that you have to be resilient as a writer, mm-hmm. you have to have a hard shell, you have to be prepared to take the knocks. And and that's the only way to put yourself forward. And I think maybe that's something that I need to do in future. Just take more risks, try mm-hmm. new things, and not try to protect myself
1: from re- rejection. Strange enough, one of the things I've written down is let it go. Mm-hmm. Um, she said, you know, that idea of you put it out there and then... Let it go. It's out there. Forget about it. Don't get emotionally involved in the outcome. Go on to the next step that you're going to take. And I think that helps with that emotional resistance. And, and I think when you do it in such a structured way, like she does, maybe it helps protect you a bit. Instead of going, I'm going to choose one agent and I'm going to target them going, I'm going to send five a week. Um, and yeah, I'm very, I'm feeling quite, energized by that. Me too.
0: And also by the message of not falling in love with your idea of what's going to happen. Don't fall in love with an agent based on their Twitter Mm. bio or what's on their website and, and sort of imagine yourself becoming their client. You've got to query a whole bunch of people. As you say, let it go and just get on with the next thing.
1: Often easier said than done. Absolutely. Fiona, what is your advice to our listeners this week when it comes to writing? Be resilient. Don't give up. Don't let the initial rejections,
0: even if they are brutal, even if they really knock you back hard, don't let that get you down. Pick yourself up, dust yourself off and keep trying because that's really the only way that anybody ever got anywhere in this business.
1: My advice for the week now is so mundane compared to your pep talk <laughs> about how to do things. I've got like this really weird little mundane piece of advice that I've not tried. So I'm about to put aside the work that I'm working on and start editing a finished book. Mm-hmm. Um, I like having a break before I edit and I've had the luxury of doing that this time. And I hear in, in podcasts that I listen to, they often talk about changing the font for editing. So if you write in one font, change to another font, Mm -hmm. and you're more likely to see the problems. Right, right. And I am going to try that. So I thought it's a tip I would share with everybody because it's interesting and I will report back in a few months on how that went for me.
0: Well, that'll be fascinating to hear. And perhaps our listeners, not readers, (laughs) can write in and tell us if they have tried that tip or Mm -hmm. anything else that has worked for them, if they have... Put themselves out there and been rejected because we are as interested in the stories of failure as we are interested as in the stories of success. So please get hold of us. We're on all social media at the Hidden Lives of Writers. We'd love to hear from you. You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts.